And now, coming to you from an undisclosed location. It's the Novus Ordo Watch Trapcast. You've got to be kidding. You can't make the stuff up. Finally, Tratcast has returned, and this is episode number 21, the first one of 2018. Tratcast is Novus Ordo Watch for your ears where we are not more Catholic than the Pope, only more Catholic than the anti-Pope. As always, ladies and gentlemen, there is so much to talk about, but so little time in which to do it. But uh, we do our best here, and um, this show is going to have a pretty good mix of different topics, so if you don't particularly care for one topic talked about here, Just hang on and keep listening, because we're going to get to a lot of other things as well. All right, uh, today we'll start by congratulating Michael Voris of Church Militant. The new year wasn't even a full month old yet, when he already qualified himself for the Hypocrite of the Year Award by releasing a Vortex episode on January 30th called Catholic Media Failures, with the intriguing subtitle, There Are Consequences to Silence. Here are a few excerpts from that show. Catholic media is overall in a woeful state, most especially Catholic establishment media, meaning those who will not or cannot report everything going on in the church because their bread is buttered by the bishops and their lackeys. It's astonishing, really, The claim to be journalists and reporters and sources of information, come on. Not really, at least not everything, and certainly not the most important things. The dreadful, miserable, horrible job the bishops and the establishment have done at passing on the faith. That is the headline for the past 50 years. And most Catholic media, with rare exception, who get paid by the establishment, directly or indirectly, report on next to none of this and certainly never place the blame where it needs to go because they would have their names stricken from every monument in Egypt, like Pharaoh did to Moses in Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments. And a little bit later in the same broadcast, he says this. They should start speaking the full truth of the chaos in the church or stop posing as reliable sources. They are every bit as bad as the CNN fake news empire, but in some ways they're even worse. 
they deprive you of the necessary knowledge to understand the full context of what is going on in the church, even though they themselves know it. Now, if this isn't the pot calling the kettle black, Michael Voris, king of not reporting what he ought to report, specifically the many horrible things said and done by Francis, has the chutzpah to denounce other news outlets for not reporting the known truth. This is incredible. That's exactly what he's been doing, or not doing, with regard to Francis. And he even made it into an official church militant policy which you can find on their website, which we'll link to in the show notes. In that policy that he drew up some years ago after more and more people were getting annoyed that he was always blasting anyone and everyone for being liberals and heretics except Francis, in that policy you see things like church militant will not engage in public criticism of the Pope, period. And criticizing the Pope is spiritual pornography. And this is just like laughing about Noah's nakedness and other garbage like that. He's basically taking a holier-than-thou approach, which he will only extend to Francis, of course. The Pope is different. Yeah, he's got that right. When the very same evils and heresies and scandals he denounces when other people commit them are perpetrated by the man acknowledged to be the Pope, then they're infinitely worse than if they're just committed by some lower-ranking clergyman. But no, Voris loves spending his time bashing people like Timothy Dolan, Blaise Supich, James Martin, and all these other modernist pseudo-clerics, but when it comes to the worst of them all, the one at the top that is responsible for the whole thing and could end it any time he wished, there Voris falls silent and suddenly discovers that such criticism is not permissible. Just where such critical reporting and theological refutations would matter the most, because they would show that the man who claims to be the Pope cannot possibly be Pope, for one thing because he's obviously not a Roman Catholic, there the intrepid hammer of heretics Michael Voris suddenly lays down his arms. While it's kind of important to know whether the man who claims to be the vicar of Christ isn't actually the vicar of the devil instead. (laughs) That's actually a little bit more important than knowing if uh, Father James Martin was booed off stage in Tennessee. But no, for Voras exposing the truth about Francis, that's just spiritual porn. Yeah, likely story. I'm sorry, but the inevitable question that people will be asking themselves, especially after hearing Voris denounce those other news outlets for worrying about their paychecks too much, is, well, Mr. Voris, who's paying you? Now, look, I don't know who's paying Michael Voris. I don't know who his main benefactors are, and honestly, I don't really care. But for someone who's been misleading and keeping in the dark his own audience about Francis for so long, he sure has guts to be accusing other media outlets for doing the same thing with regard to people under Francis, and doing it basically for the money. Hey, Francis' underlings are simply following their master's lead. You can blame them, yes, but then blame him, too. It makes no sense, and is really disingenuous, to blast the Novus Ordo cardinals and bishops and priests for doing the very same things, in essence, that their boss, the supposed Pope, does. So Voris wants to play good Catholic who will not criticize the Pope? 
Well, very good, Mr. Voris. That's very noble of you, because indeed we are not permitted to trash a true pope, to make fun of him, or to resist or criticize his magisterium. But we've got news for you, Mr. Voris. It's not permissible to do that with regard to bishops, either. On December 17, 1888, Pope Leo XIII wrote an apostolic letter to the Archbishop of Tours, France, in which he addressed the issue of journalists publicly criticizing bishops. Here's a quote from that letter. Quote, In fact, it is always true and manifest to all that there are in the church two grades, very distinct by their nature, the shepherds and the flock, that is to say, the rulers and the people. It is the function of the first order to teach, to govern, to guide men through life, to impose rules. The second has the duty to be submissive to the first, to obey, to carry out orders, to render honor. And if subordinates usurp the place of superiors, this is, on their part, not only to commit an act of harmful boldness, but even to reverse, as far as in them lies, the order so wisely established by the providence of the divine founder of the church. If by chance there should be in the ranks of the episcopate a bishop not sufficiently mindful of his dignity, and apparently unfaithful to one of his sacred obligations, in spite of this, he would lose nothing of his power, and, so long as he remained in communion with the Roman pontiff, it would certainly not be permitted to anyone to relax in any detail the respect and obedience which are due his authority. On the other hand, to scrutinize the actions of a bishop, to criticize them, does not belong to individual Catholics, but concerns only those who, in the sacred hierarchy, have a superior power. Above all, it concerns the supreme pontiff, for it is to him that Christ confided the care of feeding not only the lambs, but even the sheep. At the same time, when the faithful have grave cause for complaint, they are allowed to put the whole matter before the Roman pontiff, provided always that, safeguarding prudence and the moderation counseled by concern for the common good, they do not give vent to outcries and recriminations, which contribute rather to the rise of divisions and ill-feeling, or certainly increase them." Unquote. Bam! Yeah, bam, exactly, Mr. Voris. That was from Pope Leo XIII's apostolic letter, Est Sane Molestum, and uh, we have the entire document linked for you in the show notes. And so, this is why we've been calling the church militant enterprise Church Disneyland, because so much of it is make-believe, spin, omitted facts, and so on. They live in a fantasy land, but not only by failing to report on certain things, but also very much by spinning truth and thereby distorting it. As early as March 2013, in fact, right after France's election, we were already calling Michael Voris out on this, on the ridiculous, super-conservative spin that he was gratuitously and against contrary evidence putting on Francis. We've got a few links lined up for you in the show notes, so you can see for yourself how badly Voris was spinning the facts to make it look as though Francis were this reincarnation of St. Pius X, basically. And that's where these sound clips come from that we use here, like this one. Pope Francis talks like a pope, like the successor to St. Peter. 
or that one. There goes yet another pope being all Catholic and all that. Right. <laughs> and now you know why we started calling his Vortex program the Ignortex and the Distortex. And this phenomenon of denouncing the Church of Nice, while neglecting to mention that this Church of Nice also has a Pope of Nice, this we called the Vorus virus. And honestly, I had no intention of bringing this up again, but when I saw in late January that Voris, of all people, was blasting the other Novus Ordo news organizations for not doing their job, I was beside myself because it is so hypocritical. He is the last person on earth to talk. And you know, you'd think that if Voris has chosen this path of selective reporting and spinning, that at least he'd shut up about everyone else. But no, he goes out there in front of the cameras and has the audacity to denounce others for that of which he himself is guilty on a much more serious scale. I say more serious because no one has more potential to deceive souls than the man who is believed by the masses to be the Pope of the Catholic Church. All right, enough of Michael Voris, but uh, we might as well turn to Francis now since we've already mentioned him. Everybody knows, and it's not like he's tried to keep it a secret, everybody knows that Francis does not care for the traditional Latin Mass. And yet, he has now, out of the blue, granted to the Fraternity of St. Peter and a few other similar organizations a special permission, an indult, to celebrate the Holy Week liturgy from before 1955 for the next three years. Now, let me repeat that because it's, it's easy to miss the impact of this. Francis has granted permission to the Fraternity of St. Peter to use the traditional Holy Week rites from before Pope Pius XII made changes to them. That is huge. For those who are not quite familiar, here's a little bit of background. The Fraternity of St. Peter is the religious community that came out of the Lefebvreite schism in 1988 when the Society of St. Pius X formally broke its communion with John Paul II. In response to the unlawful Episcopal consecrations of Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre on June 30, 1988, Pope John Paul II declared that Lefebvre and the other bishops had excommunicated themselves. He called them schismatic and offered to those who had hitherto been part of the SSPX but didn't agree with these consecrations to found their own new religious congregation known as the Fraternity of St. Peter in full communion with the Novus Ordo sect, but while retaining basically all of the traditional liturgical rites. Now, what's important to understand here is that both the SSPX and the Fraternity of St. Peter, the FSSP, have only been using the liturgical books of 1962. Those books were last modified by John XXIII, so that was after Pope Pius XII. It's the 1962 Missal that they refer to when they talk about the traditional liturgy, the traditional Latin Mass. Now, compared to the liturgical rites approved by Pope Pius XII, the 1962 rites are fairly similar. Most people in the pew would not be able to tell the difference. 
That's not to say that there aren't any problems with the 1962 books, but all things considered, the changes are not very noticeable compared to the books in use until the death of Pope Pius XII. So the fraternity of St. Peter had never requested to use any liturgical rites other than those of 1962, at least not to my knowledge. Had they wanted to use what came before that, the most logical thing would have been to ask to be allowed to use the 1955 rites, which were modified by Pope Pius XII. But Francis didn't even grant them that. He just granted them the use of the liturgy from before 1955. Well, for Holy Week only, not for the rest of the liturgical year, but for Holy Week. But still, that's significant because Pius XII's Holy Week reforms in 1955 were rather far-reaching, at least for Good Friday and Holy Saturday. So, the FSSP now gets to use the old Holy Week in use from before Pius XII's reforms. That is like heaven on earth for them. They must be beside themselves for joy and gratitude. Francis is giving them something here that they would have never dared to ask for. Of course, the big question now is, why? Why in the world would Francis, of all people, make them this huge of a gift, a gift they never even dreamed of requesting? Remember, Francis emphasized just this past August 24th that the 1969 Novus Ordo liturgical reform of Paul VI is irreversible. Yes, that's the word he used, irreversible. And now he's granting to the FSSP this extremely generous indult to celebrate the Holy Week in use before 1955. So why is he doing that? Well, I don't know the answer. But knowing what a sly devil Francis is, and knowing how much many people who mean to be faithful traditional Catholics are attached to liturgical externals, I very much suspect that Francis has a sinister motive here. He's not doing this out of the sheer goodness of his modernist heart. In fact, if he has to soap up the indult traditionalists to such an extent, he's probably got something really, really bad planned that he needs to keep them quiet about. The indult is granted for three years only for now, so that means that if the FSSP wants to have this extended beyond that limited time frame, they're going to have to behave, if you know what I mean. Yeah, Francis knows what he's doing. He may have no clue about theology, but he knows how to get what he wants. So, I suspect that whatever move Francis may be planning, perhaps getting rid of clerical celibacy or allowing women cardinals or deaconesses or something, he's trying to get on the good side of those who could make the most noise. Come on, don't say this could never happen, right? Could never happen. I mean... He's already basically been dispensing people from observing the Sixth Commandment as long as they have a really good reason, okay? So, I, I, I think his motive here is to keep his traditionalists busy and distracted and very indebted to him for years to come. That's my suspicion. 
Francis is doing this because he wants to keep them quiet and grateful and busy with their pre-Pius Twelfth Holy Week while he goes on ransacking whatever is left of Catholicism and souls. Oh, one little detail that I almost forgot. Despite the generous concession to the FSSP that they can now use the pre-Pius Twelfth Holy Week, of course there is one little exception— they're not allowed to use the traditional Good Friday prayer for the conversion of the Jews. Can't have that. Nope, they are required to use the version Benedict XVI published in 2008. In the show notes, we're going to link our blog post explaining the difference between the traditional Catholic Good Friday prayer for the conversion of the Jews, the Novus Ordo prayer for the Jews, and the Benedict XVI version. Look for the post called The Crucified Christ Betrayed, the Novus Ordo Good Friday Prayer for the Jews. So, yeah, there always has to be that little grain of incense offered to the Jews. It goes to show you who's really in charge at the Vatican. Okay, let's look at some recent headlines and provide just a little bit of sane reality-based commentary. What have we been seeing in the news in the last few weeks and months? Let's start with this. Headline from LifeSiteNews.com, January 26, 2018. Archbishop to Trudeau, you're confused if you think you can be pro-abortion and Catholic. That is in reference to the Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who claims to be a Roman Catholic and is, of course, a big supporter of killing children in the womb, also known as abortion. The supposed Catholic Archbishop of Ottawa, Terence Prendergast, said that Prime Minister Trudeau is confused if he thinks he can be Catholic and support abortion. Yeah, that's it. It's a question of confusion, no doubt. If someone could just clear up this unfortunate confusion for him, then he would amend his ways, right? That's it. You know, this is one of the biggest reasons why everything is as bad as it is, because those in authority, or in this case, those who claim to be the Catholic authority, do not lift a finger to do what is in their putative power to do. There is no reason why Trudeau could not have long been excommunicated by Archlayman Prendergast. And the people who now say, stop complaining, at least Prendergast is speaking out against it. The people who say that have not understood how serious the situation is. We should be grateful that at least he's saying support of abortion isn't reconcilable with being a Catholic? Well, guess what? It's not even reconcilable with being a decent human being. Trudeau advocates the murder of little babies before they're born, and all he gets is an occasional slap on the wrist? Now we're supposed to be grateful that he at least gets that much? This kind of minimalism is so very gravely responsible for so much evil in this world. As Pope St. Pius X once very aptly remarked, the chief strength of the wicked lies in the cowardice and weakness of good men. All the strength of Satan's reign is due to the easygoing weakness of Catholics. I haven't seen a reliable source for this, 
and I've seen it uh, attributed to St. Pius V at times, but it, it really doesn't matter who said this because it is so true. So, Mr. Prendergast, by not even attempting to do what would be in your power if you actually were a legitimate Roman Catholic archbishop, you too share in the guilt of Mr. Trudeau. Sitting there and saying, oh, he's really confused, doesn't do a thing for anyone. And you know, as well as we all do, that confusion isn't the problem here. By the way, uh, Prendergast is a Jesuit. Just saying. All right, next headline comes from Catholic News Agency, dated March 13th, 2018. Botched execution shows death penalty must end, Catholic group says. I know there are people listening right now who oppose the death penalty. Well, the true Catholic position is that the death penalty is morally good and appropriate for capital crimes. But to those who are not convinced of that, I'm just going to ask you to bear with me for a moment here, because what I'm about to say is not so much about the morality of capital punishment as it is about dismantling a stupid argument. I am really allergic to bad arguments. So anyway, the story is that a Novus Ordo anti-death penalty group called Catholic Mobilizing Network is saying that the botched execution of Doyle Lee Ham in Alabama on February 22nd shows that the death penalty must end. And my question is, how does a botched execution argue against the death penalty? All it does is it argues against botching it. I mean, you might as well say that a three-car pileup argues against automobiles. No, it doesn't. It's not supposed to happen. It just argues for defensive driving, maybe. Maybe. What happened in Alabama on February 22nd is that an inmate was supposed to be executed using lethal injection, and they couldn't find a suitable vein. So for two and a half hours, they tried to find one and ended up puncturing him like 11 times, and they stopped when the death warrant was about to expire. Now, let me quote from the Catholic News Agency article. Quote, The events surrounding this execution attempt highlight the brokenness of the death penalty, said Catholic Mobilizing Network, which works to end the death penalty. The horrific violence that Doyle Lee Ham experienced should serve as a poignant reminder of the need to end the death penalty once and for all. Unquote. What horrific violence did he suffer? That he got punctured 11 times? That's the horrific violence? And that supposedly shows that the death penalty must end? If anything, it shows that they should have a few execution methods lined up in case one of them doesn't work. That's what that shows. So really, I cannot stand bad logic. A botched execution shows the death penalty must end. No, it just shows they need to do a better job. Now look, I know that the death penalty is an ugly punishment, but that's because the crimes that merit it are ugly crimes. If you want to reduce the number of executions, I have a great idea. Work to reduce the number of capital crimes. That's the way to do that. And ultimately, the way to reduce crime is to preach the gospel and convert souls to Jesus Christ and his holy church 
so that they will lovingly submit themselves to the sweet yoke of his law. By the way, I want to apologize for still not having followed through on the promise to put up a blog post, an in-depth post, on the Catholic teaching about capital punishment. It will happen. I just like to be very thorough, as you know, producing quality rather than quantity, and that's why that still hasn't happened yet. A post on that is way past due, uh, especially since Francis has gone on record now condemning the death penalty as intrinsically evil. Speaking of Francis, let's look at another recent headline uh, from the Catholic Herald, published March 15th. Pope Francis, if you are in a state of mortal sin, you cannot receive communion. When I read that headline, my first thought was, well, good thing adultery is not a mortal sin anymore. I mean, this is how absurd the whole thing is now. On the one hand, Francis can sound really tough and conservative about how we're not allowed to approach Holy Communion if we're in the state of mortal sin. But then at the same time, and with the other side of his modernist mouth, he teaches that those who are in a state of public adultery might not be in mortal sin if they can convince themselves that they have a really good reason to be committing adultery. The two-facedness of the whole thing is staggering. But let's go ahead and read a little from the article in the Catholic Herald, because it gets better. Quote, Any Catholic who has committed a mortal sin cannot receive Holy Communion unless they have been to confession, the Pope has said. Continuing a series of talks on the Mass during his general audience on March 14th, Pope Francis reminded Catholics of the need to obtain absolution for grave sins before receiving the Eucharist. In remarks to Polish pilgrims after his catechesis on the Our Father, the Pope said, We know that one who has committed a serious sin should not approach Holy Communion without having first obtained absolution in the Sacrament of Reconciliation. Unquote. Did you get that? He said that only in his remarks to the Polish pilgrims. He said it in Italian, and the Vatican website then translates it later, but the point being that that wasn't even part of his actual catechesis. That's just something he included in his little shout-out to the Poles at the end of the general audience. Look, the whole thing is so ridiculous at this point that it is its own best parody. And on that note, we'll take a much-needed break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Tradcast. you are enjoying the sample of the motet Felix Nanquies from the album Sacred Choral Music by Nicholas Wilton, sung by the acclaimed English choir Magnificat. If you appreciate such sacred choral music, please support the traditional Catholic composer Nicholas Wilton by buying a copy of his CD or purchasing downloads of individual tracks from fourmarksmusic.com. That is, F-O-U-R-M-A-R-K-S-M-U-S-I-C.com or his website, catholicmusic.co.uk. There is more information and also a new CD of his piano music available on those websites.
If you're looking for EWTN, this ain't it. Trapcast. Listening to Tratcast number 21. The second segment now. Tratcast is the traditional Catholic podcast that gives you the truth about Francis. Otherwise, we'd be Michael Voris. All right, there's lots more to cover, so let's get right to it. I'd like to talk about the Society of St. Pius X for a moment, the SSPX. You may remember that in April of 2017, the Vatican announced that Francis was granting Novus Ordo bishops permission to, among other things, allow Novus Ordo priests to officiate SSPX weddings and then have the SSPX priest offer the nuptial mass. Just look at the show notes for the link to a blog post on that whole issue. Well, in any case, now that it's been almost a year, the first such weddings have been celebrated, and there's a particular case in Canada that's making the rounds in the blogosphere because it really shows the insanity of it all. What happened is that an SSPX couple got married in a Novus Ordo church with the Novus Ordo priest witnessing and receiving the exchange of consent right in front of the Novus Ordo table, while the SSPX priest stood nearby and watched. And then after the vows were exchanged, the SSPX priest proceeded to offer the nuptial mass on the high altar, which was located right behind the Novus Ordo table. So it was a bit, shall we say, an odd sight. Yeah. And you're going to see a lot more of that, I'm sure. So a debate has broken out now among SSPX adherents who are fighting over whether that is a good thing or a bad thing. And the side that opposes this Novus Ordoization is saying that by having a Novus Ordo priest officiate the wedding, the SSPX can now no longer claim that there is a state of emergency in the church. And yet that state of emergency or state of necessity argument is precisely the basis on which they've always hung the legitimacy of their entire apostolate. So, this is kind of a big deal, right? I mean, they've always said that although normally you're not allowed to consecrate bishops without the papal mandate, and you can't hear confessions and officiate weddings and so forth without the proper authorization of the local ordinary, in their case, it's all different because, you know, there's the state of necessity since Vatican II that allows them to do all these things, even in direct defiance of the Vicar of Christ himself. That's been their 
rather convenient argument. And who proclaimed this state of necessity, by the way? Well, they themselves did, of course. In particular, it was their founder, Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre. And so this discussion about whether or not the SSPX is now, in effect, giving up their claim as to there being a state of necessity, although very interesting, is actually beside the point. What they should be fretting about is not whether the SSPX still does or doesn't claim the state of necessity, but where the SSPX think it got the right to essentially suspend all of Catholic teaching on the magisterium, the papacy, and the church, simply because they decide it's the right thing to do in the first place. Come on. Every heretic, every schismatic, every apostate has a reason for his heresy, his schism, and his apostasy, right? But that's not how it works in the Catholic Church. And Pope Pius IX made that uh, very clear in his magnificent 1873 encyclical Quartus Supra against the Eastern Orthodox. Here's what he says, quote, Every schism fabricates a heresy for itself to justify its withdrawal from the church. Nor can the Eastern churches preserve communion and unity of faith with us without being subject to the apostolic power in matters of discipline. Teaching of this kind is heretical, and not just since the definition of the power and nature of the papal primacy was determined by the Ecumenical Vatican Council. The Catholic Church has always considered it such and abhorred it. Thus, the bishops at the Ecumenical Council of Chalcedon clearly declared the supreme authority of the Apostolic See in their proceedings. Then they humbly requested from our predecessor, St. Leo, confirmation and support for their decrees, even those which concern discipline. Unquote. We're linking to that encyclical in our show notes, and I would highly recommend that anyone who thinks the Society of St. Pius X has a leg to stand on to read that encyclical because it totally demolishes the Lefebvre sophisms, so much so that it reads like it was written specifically to Bishop Fallet or Archbishop Lefebvre personally. So that's what the SSPXers should be reading and should be discussing amongst themselves, and not whether the SSPX has given up its claim about there being a state of necessity. Catholic teaching knows of no such thing as a state of necessity that people can simply declare and then use it to suspend whatever church teachings they think they need to contradict for the time being until they decide it's once again safe to adhere to the apostolic see. That's preposterous. You know, these are the same people that always fault us, Sede Vacanis, for saying that the Vatican II popes aren't true popes. How can you say that? You don't have the authority to make that call. You can't decide that. And then they proceed to decide that even though these men are popes, nothing they teach, legislate, or condemn has any force and must even be resisted, sometimes under pain of heresy or mortal sin, which totally usurps the authority that rightfully belongs to the Holy See and totally contradicts Catholic teaching on the papacy. If you want to see how badly the SSPX and all the recognize and resist traditionalists contradict Catholic teaching on the papacy, go to our show notes and click on the link entitled Catholic Family News and the 100% Challenge. That blog post quotes a lot of magisterial documents on the teaching and legislating authority of the Roman pontiff, 
And those who adhere to the SSPX or similar groups should review that and ask themselves honestly how much of that teaching they actually affirm. And not just in theory, but also in practice. As Pope Pius IX wrote in his 1877 encyclical Quae in Patriarchatu, quote, What good is it to proclaim aloud the dogma of the supremacy of St. Peter and his successors? What good is it to repeat over and over declarations of faith in the Catholic Church and of obedience to the Apostolic See when actions give the lie to these fine words? Moreover, is not rebellion rendered all the more inexcusable by the fact that obedience is recognized as a duty? Again, does not the authority of the Holy See extend as a sanction to the measures which we have been obliged to take, or is it enough to be in communion of faith with the See without adding the submission of obedience, a thing which cannot be maintained without damaging the Catholic faith? In fact, venerable brothers and beloved sons, it is a question of recognizing the power of this See, even over your churches, not merely in what pertains to faith, but also in what concerns discipline. He who would deny this is a heretic. He who recognizes this and obstinately refuses to obey is worthy of anathema. Unquote. Yep, that is one of the texts quoted in the 100% challenge to Catholic Family News that I mentioned just moments ago. So you can see it's definitely worth checking out. Yeah, you see, the Society of St. Pius X and similar traditionalist groups want a papacy without consequences. That's why they're so quick to affirm that Francis is the Pope, no matter what, and then proceed to ignore him, trash him, mock him, disobey him, denounce him, and so forth. But such a papacy does not exist. It is certainly not the Catholic papacy. And you cannot maintain the faith of the Catholic Church by contradicting that very faith any more than you can borrow your way out of debt. But what about us, Sede Vacantis, then, right? Don't we usurp authority to declare Bergoglio and his friends to be false hierarchs, non-Catholics, and not the legitimate successors of the apostles? This objection is made all the time, and uh, though I've addressed it many times, I'd be glad to do it again for those who have not heard our response before or who may have forgotten it. In a nutshell, it simply does not require authority to point out that what cannot be true is not true. It is the authority of human reason, so to speak, enjoyed by all who are in possession of their faculties that assures us of the truth of this claim. The question whether Jorge Bergoglio is a public Catholic or a public non-Catholic, cannot be a matter of opinion. We know what he professes in public, and we know how he acts in public. That is all we need to be able to make a judgment, not a legal one, not a legal judgment, but a cognitive one. And the objective evidence says, or screams rather, that the man is not a Roman Catholic. Any seven-year-old child would not be allowed to make his first Holy Communion if he uttered the things that Francis professes. Francis is not a Catholic, but a modernist. He's a naturalist, a Sionist, an ecumenist, an indifferentist, a communist. And he embraces a whole lot of other isms that do not begin with Catholic. 
The evidence against Francis is so overwhelming that no one who knows what Catholicism is and what Francis has been saying and doing can deny it. There is no room for opinion here. No one is allowed to say that a man who professes Francis's heresies and errors is a Catholic. We can say this with certitude because we know what Catholicism is, and therefore we also know, necessarily, what is not Catholicism, that is, what contradicts Catholicism. These are two sides of the same coin. If we know what a Catholic is, then we also know what a heretic is. If you know one, you know the other. Now notice that everything that I've just said pertains entirely to the order of fact, not to the order of law. No Sedevacanist could issue a legal judgment against Francis, because such a legal judgment would indeed require special authority. But the legal judgment, although desirable, is not necessary to be able to know that Francis is an apostate and therefore not Pope. It is not necessary because the fact of Francis' apostasy is manifest. If it weren't manifest, we wouldn't be talking about it. In canonical language, Francis' departure from the faith is notorious in fact, and even in an ecclesiastical trial, what is notorious does not need any further proof, much less an official judgment. Here's a quote on that from the Catholic Encyclopedia. Quote, the judge, and in general the person in authority, holding what is notorious to be certain and proved, requires no further information, and therefore both may and ought to refrain from any judicial inquiry, proof, or formalities which would otherwise be necessary. For these inquiries and formalities having as their object to enlighten the judge are useless when the fact is notorious. Such is the true meaning of the axiom that in notorious matters the judge need not follow the judicial procedure. Unquote. And that is from the entry Notoriety Notorious in the Catholic Encyclopedia of 1911. We've got it linked, of course, in the show notes. So, does this mean that Sedevacanus can demand that others agree with us on the question of whether Francis is a true pope or not? Well, the answer to that is yes and no. We'll need to draw an important distinction here. Binding someone else's conscience would indeed require ecclesiastical authority, and that's something no Sedevacanist has. If any Sedevacanist were to pretend that he has the right of himself to bind somebody else's conscience, he would be mistaken and act unjustly. In other words, no Sedevacantist could say, you must be a Sedevacantist because I say so. That would clearly be impermissible. But then really, nobody is doing that. And if anyone is doing that, he's wrong. At the same time, that's not the whole story. Although we cannot demand that others accept Sedevacantism because we say so, nevertheless we can demand that others accept church teaching, accept the empirically verifiable facts about what Francis says and does, and draw the logically necessary conclusion that follows from both. Sedevacantism is the only conclusion that does not run into conflict with Catholic teaching which means that it's the only conclusion that is possible, and therefore it's also necessary. 
It's for this reason that others have the obligation to embrace it. Not because we Sedevacanists say so, as though we had any authority to bind their consciences, but because, according to Catholic teaching, no other conclusion is possible. And since we have an obligation to adhere to Catholic teaching, we thus also have an obligation to embrace Sedevacantism. In short, the necessity for people to be Sedevacantist does not arise from Sedevacantist say-so. It arises from the fact that all are obliged by Catholic teaching and the manifest empirical facts to arrive at that conclusion. So, it has nothing to do with, you know, hubris or pride, arrogance or presumed authority or anything of the kind. It's very much like explaining to someone that if he understands what one means, what two means, what equal means, and what plus means, then he must conclude, necessarily, that one plus one equals two. Or, to use another analogy, if Jack is a bachelor, and all bachelors are unmarried, then we must conclude, necessarily, that Jack is unmarried. No other conclusion is permitted or possible, and we cannot hide behind the cop-out that we don't have the authority to say that Jack is unmarried. Welcome to the binding force of reason. You are listening to Tratcast, the one-of-a-kind Sedevacantist podcast that is triumphalist, rigid, intolerant, and everything else that Jorge Bergoglio abhors all in one. This podcast is being provided to the world free of charge, in case you hadn't noticed. You're welcome. It's not free to produce, though. Hint, hint. And if you'd like to help keep this effort going, you can do so by making a donation at the donate link found in the show notes, or simply go to novusordowatch.org donate. And if you're in the United States, your donation is even tax deductible. Pope Francis talks like a pope, like the successor to St. Peter. Go away. <laughs> Sorry about that. All right now, ladies and gentlemen, we've saved the best for last. It's time now to discuss the remnant's agony over the upcoming canonization of Pope Paul VI, the man who gave to the world the decrees of the Second Vatican Council and the so-called New Mass, and is really the one man most responsible for the institution of the Novus Ordo sect in all its essential features. Yep, the Vatican announced that in October of this year, Paul VI will be declared a saint by Francis, who has already pretended to give that status to John XXIII and John Paul II. Paul VI is uh, also sometimes referred to by other names. Um, his baptismal name, for example, is Giovanni Battista Montini. And uh, I personally like to call him Formaldehyde Paul, because uh, when his body was lying in state in the Vatican in August of 1978, he stunk so badly that they had to install fans to dispel the putrid odor, excuse me, the odor of sanctity. And uh, yeah, they had to inject more formaldehyde into his rotting corpse so that people wouldn't pass out from the stench at the funeral. Anyway, if Paul VI is a saint, then of course the recognize and resist traditionalists like the SSPX or the gentleman at the Remnant newspaper have a big problem. So 
On February 10th, The Remnant editor Michael Matt released a new episode of The Remnant Underground entitled Saint Pope Paul VI When Pigs Fly. Of course, it'll be a cold day in hell before they will ever say Pope Francis when pigs fly, but we already discussed that issue. Now, in that video, Michael Matt pushes the typical recognize and resist line against Novus Ordo canonizations, but also tries to reconcile that with the pesky fact that church teaching is that the canonization of saints is infallible. So let's have a listen to what Mr. Matt argues beginning at the six minute, four second mark, and then we'll skip around a bit. The majority opinion among theologians in the past was that papal infallibility does in fact come into the canonization process, right? We all, we accept that. And so under normal circumstances, you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't come out and start questioning saints. Uh, well, I don't know if it passes muster with me, right? You wouldn't do that. No Catholic would do that. But that was then when this consensus was made by theologians. That was then. That was before everything in the church uh, kind of went crazy. The majority opinion among theologians was based on what? It was, a base, it was based on established criteria, such as that the cause for a given canonization, the cause uh, had to overcome all of the objections of the devil's advocate. And this was a tough guy. Okay, now wait a minute. There's a few things wrong here. Matt makes it seem as though the Catholic teaching on the infallibility of canonizations is simply an opinion that one can either share or not share, and it just so happens that the majority of theologians hold that view, and so that gives it a greater likelihood of being true. But that's really not the case. As explained by the theologian Father Joachim Salaveri in his On the Church of Christ, the infallibility of canonizations is theologically certain. It is a dogmatic fact. To deny a dogmatic fact or a theologically certain conclusion is a mortal sin against faith. Uh, then Matt claims that the theologians who argued for the infallibility of canonizations did so based essentially on the thorough investigative process, with the devil's advocate trying to derail the canonization, which the candidate had to withstand and overcome. I'm sorry, but that's ridiculous. No matter how good a process is, it's never going to be infallible. Neither could it be the cause of an infallible judgment, because obviously a fallible cause can never have an infallible effect. And so for Michael Matt to make that assertion is rather amazing. And unless he can quote evidence in that regard, I suspect that Matt simply made it up. He probably just imagined that the theologians in question based it on the investigative process. Okay, let's uh, go back to the audio now at 8 minutes and 3 seconds. Because without the devil's advocate, how do we know if the majority of theologians in the past would have still maintained that papal infallibility comes into the canonization process or declaration? We don't know that. Um, actually, we do. And that's because the infallibility of canonizations isn't based on the presence of the devil's advocate. Because the testing of a candidate for sainthood by a devil's advocate is hardly infallible. That's not to say that it's useless, it's just to say that it cannot be a cause of infallibility. And now we'll go to 8 minutes 27 seconds. So now in this case there's no, there's no devil's advocate anymore. So the Vatican kangaroo court can pretty much do whatever it wants, right? I mean that's how it seems to me if you eliminate these things. 
They can do whatever they want. And here you can see that despite his declarations to the contrary, Michael Madd really believes that the Catholic Church, remember he thinks that the Novus Ordo sect is the Catholic Church, he believes that the Catholic Church is just a human institution. That is exactly how he's approaching the whole matter here. You take away the devil's advocate, you're left with a kangaroo court. Well, sir, if it's God's holy church, then there is no kangaroo court. The church is divine. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, Christ said to St. Peter in Matthew 16, 19. And by the way, our Lord said that in the very context of the gates of hell not prevailing, which he mentioned in the verse before that. See, this is the problem when you try at all costs not to be sedevacantist. You end up with having to twist and distort everything, and by doing that, you destroy it all. And by the way, even with the devil's advocate, how do you know that the cardinal who had that role wasn't corrupt, wasn't influenced by political considerations, wasn't bribed, and so forth? Well, you don't know that. So in any case, it will do no good to hinge infallibility on the devil's advocate. I'm picking up now at 8 minutes and 41 seconds. Let's go back to Michael Matt. Well, then the argument, of course, is, well, no, because the Pope's words, you know, with the Declaration of Canonization, those words suffice. Those are infallible. And again, maybe that's, maybe that's the case. But really? So what's the point of the process? What's the point of the process? Well, Mr. Matt, the Pope has to know whom to canonize. And so, of course, he uses all the ordinary human means to ascertain that. That's how it works in the church. And that's how it works for dogma, too. The Pope's ex cathedra pronouncement is guaranteed to be infallible. But to know what to proclaim as dogma, a lot of theological research has to be done. And just as grace builds on nature, so infallibility is the gift that God grants to a human process. The fallible human process doesn't cause the infallibility, as Matt erroneously thinks, any more than nature causes grace. No, it is God who prevents the Pope and the Church from error in both cases. Infallibility is based on God preserving his Church, not on some human process. Then Matt says, Obviously his infallible statement is based on the process. No, it's not. A process that had to be worked out meticulously to prevent the Pope from making a mistaken declaration of canonization. You see? No, I don't see. That's complete nonsense. The fallible human process does not cause infallibility. Now let's skip to uh, 9 minutes 44 seconds. Well, it doesn't make any sense to me that the Pope would just get to trash that whole process of canonization, get rid of two out of three miracles, nix the devil's advocate, and maybe even canonize somebody for purely political reasons, and then we have to accept that as infallible. Well, maybe, but that doesn't seem to make sense to me. Again, here you see that Matt believes the Catholic Church to be a merely human institution. Yet he's always out there claiming that the divine element of the Church has not been compromised, it's only the human element that is in really bad shape. Of course, he never defines just what constitutes the divine and the human elements, and I think I know why. 
I mean, here you can see that he questions the divine element just as much as the human element, because it is obviously the divine element that guarantees infallibility and protects the church from proposing to the faithful public sinners as saints for their veneration and imitation. For the remnant, the Catholic Church is simply another human organization that is only as reliable as the people in it. Human weakness, corruption, and sin can thwart the infallibility of the Church, according to these supposed traditional Catholics. Well, with traditional Catholics like that, we don't need modernists. I'm sorry, I know I'm sounding harsh here, but this needs to be said. Aside from personal piety and virtue and good intentions and all that, the remnant has been doing so much damage to Catholicism because of its utter refusal to let Catholic doctrine be its guide no matter the consequences. Why is someone like Michael Matt being looked to by so many traditionalists as some kind of a guiding light and promoter of the true traditional Catholic position? Beats me. Now let's forward to the 18-minute mark where Matt is speaking in the context of the upcoming supposed canonization of Paul VI. Anyone who believes, in fact, that the Holy Ghost is involved with this obvious political chicanery and opportunism is, is just drinking the neo-Catholic Kool-Aid by the vatful. That's exactly right. The Holy Ghost obviously has nothing to do with these fake canonizations of the Vatican II Church. But what makes this a blasphemous affront on Matt's part is the fact that he claims that this church is the Bride of Christ, the Roman Catholic Church, guided and protected by God. That is what throws a monkey wrench into it all, and as far as I can tell, the only reason it's done is because they want to avoid the conclusion of Sedevacantism, for whatever reason. I don't even care what the reason is, because honestly, no reason is good enough. You know, I have no problem whatsoever with someone looking at all the facts and then trying to figure this thing out, even if he makes a mistake, if he comes to a wrong conclusion in the end. We're all just human beings here, and of course, Sedevacantism does have its share of difficulties, its share of less-than-ideal answers, or sometimes no clear answers, but at least not contradictions. So if Matt were simply trying to figure this out, that'd be totally cool. But you can tell he's not because although he's considering different possibilities about infallibility and the processes and this and that, there's one thing he has already determined from the outset before any investigation he will not accept. The idea that the man who performs all these absurd canonizations isn't actually the Pope. Now that would explain it all, wouldn't it? and it would totally leave intact the Church's position on the infallibility of canonizations. It would not contradict Catholic teaching in any way, and yet that is the one position that the remnant absolutely refuses to consider even so much as a possibility. And Matt says in the beginning of the video that he doesn't have all the answers, right? But then, as always, excludes a priori the one position that can perfectly explain why Francis can do these things. Now, some people say, oh, but what about the motive of a canonization? They're clearly trying to canonize Vatican II and icons of the modernist revolution, and these political motives render the canonization suspect, when otherwise they'd be infallible. That's the objection. Well, the answer to that is 
simply show me where in any theology book before Vatican II, the motive for a canonization had anything to do with its validity. I see no such thing, and it really wouldn't make any sense. I mean, either someone is a saint worthy of our veneration and imitation, or he's not. The reason why he's canonized really has nothing to do with that. In fact, you know, one of the motives of Pope Pius Twelfth in canonizing Pope Pius X in 1954 was to help stem the resurgent modernism in his time. That was obviously a good motive, but the modernists didn't think so. So do we now have to know the motive for each canonization before we accept it? And how do we evaluate that? Who gets to say if a motive is good enough? And likewise about the process. Who gets to decide when the process is good enough? No, you can see here that all of these considerations treat the Catholic Church as a merely human institution that is only as reliable as her members are holy. Now, I know that since the release of that Remnant Underground video on February 10th, the Remnant has put out an article by Christopher Ferreira called The Canonization Crisis. And uh, I was originally going to dissect that right here on the show, but it, it turns out it's a bit too complex for that. And so we'll instead have a response to it on our blog at novosordowatch.org slash wire. So you can look forward to that. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's been quite a show. Thank you for sticking around for so long. And please remember to tell your friends, family members, neighbors, clergy, everyone. Tell them all about Tratcast. And for those of you who think this effort is worth supporting, you know to find that donate link in the show notes. I hope you enjoyed this show, and God willing, we'll see you next time. God bless you. <laughs>